Good morning, Hope. Uh, glad that you're here. Welcome. Turn to the person next to you and say, we're better because you're here today. Thank you for coming. Whatever campus you're at, in Ankeny or Ames, Johnston Grimes or Waukee, uh, Des Moines or here in West Des Moines, or if you're watching online, really glad that you're here today. Uh, coming to church is a blessing for us uh, because we come, but it's also, uh, you really truly are a blessing for others uh, when you show up here. We're better together and it is the body of Christ. And so thanks for packing God's house here again today. Well, there's only one Archie Bunker and if you're too young to know who he is, uh, let me introduce you to him. Uh, played by Carol O'Connor, Archie Bunker uh, was the star of the show called All in the Family, which is critically acclaimed as probably one of the top two or three sitcoms in the history of sitcoms uh, in America. One Emmys left and right, uh, was always rewarded, was always uh, very sensitively written uh, about the issues of our day back in the 70s. Archie Bunker represented the rough and gruff, urban, blue-collar, um, very uh, old school and bigoted uh, oftentimes kind of view of life and a worldview. He would clash frequently with his son-in-law who had his own issues. You know, we're all more complicated than we like to think uh, sometimes and so are other people around us. So uh, his son-in-law had some good things going for him and he had some other things that he uh, was in the darkness about and so they clashed. Archie called him not so affectionately meathead and that tension would often drive the comedy in the show, uh, would, would reveal some things about their characters in a silly kind of humorous way but then underneath it in this really what's what a lot of critics call the most classic scene of this classic sitcom, Archie is baptizing his grandson sneaking into the church down the street to do it out of love even though he's on all sorts of surface levels, a, a mess of a, of a sinful human being, uh, a, a person who's got some real serious blind spots that apparently he doesn't see because he feels pretty righteous about it, uh, yet underneath it all, we are more complex than a lot of times we want to acknowledge, and so are the people around us. Underneath it all, he has love for his grandson, and he wants his grandson to be saved, for heaven, for eternal life. And so even though his theology isn't spot on and his scriptural knowledge isn't perfect and in full alignment with the details of scripture, he shows up in this church out of love for his grandson and out of a desire to want him to be saved and he baptizes him and it did take, I mean if that wasn't just an actor playing a part, it does take, that is not me recommending those of you who are grandparents that you sneak off with your kid and baptize that child. It's also not me discouraging you from that, just so you know, that's between you and the Lord. But, and you and your families and all the, the message you're gonna have to unpack there. But there is something going on in baptism that's worth noting. There's something powerful. We're going through this series of sermons called uh, Here We Stand. It's to celebrate the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation, and we're Lutherans, and this is Martin Luther, and so we take our name uh, in, for, from him and honor uh, the first part of our name because of that, and if you're new to hope, I'll say it again. The thing about being Lutheran isn't that we say Lutheran is best or that we're trying to teach or preach a Lutheran doctrine or theology here first and foremost is the main thing, and, and, and that, that that's what you have to you know, believe in. The great thing and the great contribution Luther made to the whole church in this Reformation is he pointed the whole church back to the Bible. 
back to this book which connects us to God. And so when Luther talks about the things that we've been talking about over this series of of sermons over the last few weeks, he's talking about what does the Bible say about these things? What does the Bible say about the law and the gospel? What does the Bible say uh, about this little summary book that that Luther published for parents to teach their kids uh, what a Bible-based Christian life looks like? It's called the small catechism. And so we've been touring through that. But the catechism isn't a book that points to itself. It's a book that points to the Bible. And Luther would remind us the Bible exists not as a book unto itself either, but as a book that points us to Jesus Christ, that points us to a God who's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that points us to God's grace that we're saved by through faith in Jesus Christ, that points us to the good news of God's love poured out for us. So the best thing that Lutherans can do to honor Martin Luther isn't to talk about our denomination opposed to other denominations or always focus in on the contrasts and those sorts of things. The most Lutheran thing we can do is be Bible people. If it's in the Bible, it's Lutheran. And if it's there, it tells us who we are and who our God is and what we're called to be. So during this series, we've gotten into Luther's catechism, which is a Bible-based summary of the Christian life. We started with the Ten Commandments, where Luther starts in the catechism a few weeks ago. Then we went into the Apostles' Creed, which is a biblical summary of the Christian faith, a, a, a creedal summary of biblical faith. And then last week, we looked into the Lord's Prayer. Now we turn the page, one more page, into the small catechism, this little book. And Luther starts talking about sacraments like Archie Bunker is doing there in that scene for his little grandson, Joey. And there's a lot of misunderstanding when it comes to the sacraments, not just amongst people who aren't Christians. I'm talking about amongst Christians, too. We have a a, a lot of, some people say it's all about how many you count. The Roman Catholic Church that Luther grew up in had seven sacraments, and here they're listed. Baptism, confirmation, Lord's Supper, or Holy Communion, or Eucharist, confession, marriage, ordination, last rites, which is officially called the anointing of the sick, but I didn't have room on the screen, so I called it last rites, which is commonly referred to. Luther came along, and the other reformers, and they said, well... Since we're Bible people, let's see what Scripture says about this. And going into the Gospels and into the Word of God and into a literal definition of what sacrament is, which is God's self-giving, the way God pours out His grace for us, Luther said, well, actually, and the other Reformers, there aren't seven sacraments. By the literal definition of the Word, there are two. Baptism and communion. Baptism and the Lord's Supper. And he did this in a rather compelling way, as the other reformers did too. They said in order for it to rise to the level of a sacrament, it has to be instituted by Jesus himself. So well, when did Jesus institute baptism? Great commission, Matthew 28. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. What's the next word? Do I have a Bible reader in the house today? Baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit. That's what my followers will do, Jesus says. He's instituting baptism before he ascends to heaven. He says, look, this is what you do as my church. Among other things, I'm instituting this as a commandment. You will baptize people as they come to faith. And you will bring them, uh, you you will fulfill the promises you make for the children who are baptized on the faith of the parents and the sponsors. 
If you want a whole sermon on why some churches baptize babies and adults and other churches just baptize people who've come to faith first, I'll be teaching on that at page two on Tuesday night and what the Bible says about those things. I would rather focus this weekend on something that I think is even more important, something that gets to the heart of our faith and what these sacraments are ultimately really all about. Jesus institutes it, baptism and the Lord's Supper. He institutes the Lord's Supper in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the Synoptic Gospels. It's repeated again, picked up by the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians, our Bible reading for today, chapter 11, verses 23 to 26. Jesus says, this Passover meal, which I'm sharing with you, my followers, if you're going to be my followers, I want you to do a new thing now. There's a new covenant. This bread of the Passover meal is now my body, the body of Christ. This wine of the Passover meal is not just a remembrance of what happened back in the days of Moses anymore. Now, it's way more than that for you. It is a sign of my blood. It is my blood. Jesus says, this is my body. This is my blood given and shed for you for the forgiveness of sins. So that's the second thing, the forgiveness of sins. To sum it up in a word, it's grace. Everyone say grace. Grace. Grace is the way God gives us the things that we don't deserve. And so Luther and the other reformers said, in order for it to rise to the literal definition of what a sacrament is in a Bible-based way, it has to meet those two requirements. It has to be instituted by Jesus Christ. Baptism and the Lord's Supper are. The rest of these are not. It has to be uh, something that is an outpouring of God's grace. Not either or, but both of those things. But here's the thing, folks. Before you go all anti-Catholic on this, Lutherans do all seven of these things. So do almost all Protestants. We're for confirmation. We're for, we do that here every year. Make a big deal out of it because it seals the deal. It's, it's like the, the next step of baptism. In baptism, God says yes to us or to our babies or our grandchildren. In confirmation, that child grows up to say yes to God. I, I embrace this faith that God has given to me. Uh, confession, we do confession. Pastor Richard confesses to me four or five times a day. Comes into my <laughs> little booth. I don't know why I'm picking on Richard today, but I am. He does not. Uh, but we confess as Lutherans to one another in our small groups. People who receive prayers after the services talk about people confessing and they share it with everybody and say what you said. No, they don't. They don't. It's between you and the Lord. Confession happens in our pastoral counseling around here on a regular basis. We're for it. It's good for the soul. We're for marriage. We're for ordination. We do those things. We're for the anointing of the sick and the healing of the sick and praying for those who are dying. We do all of these things. They're not Catholic things. They're Christian things. But only two of them, the ones highlighted in yellow, rise to the level of sacraments. We do this because, not just because Luther and the Reformers told us, because Luther and the Reformers, when they got it right, said, what does the Bible say? A lot of you are really kind of catching on to this. You're getting excited about this whole Luther thing, though, this 500th anniversary of the Reformation. Here's a picture from a life group at Hope that they sent me not so long ago, uh, a women's group here. I'm not pointing at anybody, but it might be over in this section. Oh, you've got it. There it is. So they had these Luther masks that they put on and they posted it on Facebook and I thought that was worth showing. Our life groups around here know how to party. And that also puts the challenge down for your small group here at Hope 
to have your own version of a Luther party and see if you can get in a sermon. So there it is. But we, we have this grace that God gives to us that Luther points us to. But a lot of Christians, not just people outside of the church, but a lot of Christians underestimate these sacraments or they overestimate them. They treat them like they're magic, like the water is magic or the bread and the wine is magic. It's overestimating. You say, if I could just get my kid done, I'll have an insurance policy for heaven. That's overestimating the power of the water or the bread and the wine. But the bigger danger for a lot of Christians these days, if I'm paying careful enough attention to it, is we underestimate the sacraments. I hear this a lot. Oh, it's just symbolic. It's just a remembrance of things that happened. It is a remembrance, but it's more, biblically. Oh, it's just to remind us of things that happened once upon a time to Jesus. It's, it's just a ritual we go through. I mean, it's nice, but it's not that important. No, Jesus commanded it. He said, this is what Christians do. They baptize and they break bread and share in the Lord's Supper together. If you think baptism is nothing or you are falling into the temptation of, uh, of minimizing it because Uncle Louie told you it's not that big of a deal or it's just symbolic or, or, or some, somebody in your life or in a Bible study somewhere told you that it, baptism doesn't save you, it's no big deal. I'm not telling you baptism saves you because it's Lutheran theology or because it's my opinion as a preacher. I'm just telling you what the Bible says. Let's just take the Bible at its word. First Peter chapter three, let's read this together, please. And that water is a picture of baptism, which now saves you. It is effective because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Baptism saves you. So says God in his word. It saves you. To say it doesn't is to dismiss scripture. You don't want to do that. If it's in the Bible, it's Christian, not just Lutheran. Baptism saves you. I put the end of the verse there too because Luther would be the first to say, and he says this right in his catechism, it's not the water. It's not the baptism in and of itself. Baptism is an outward sign of a divine promise. It has to be connected to the promise for the salvation to happen. It connects us to the promise that there is a God who showed up in the person of Jesus Christ who died on the cross and rose from the dead. That's how it saves us. It's just the vehicle, one of the many vehicles through which God can bring salvation to you and to those around you. But don't underestimate it. It's not just a baby dedication. It's more. Biblically, there's more going on here. This is a baptism. This is commanded and instituted by Jesus Christ, not just an Old Testament ritual that we're practicing. This is God's grace being poured out for us. So says the promise of God's word because it's not the water, it's not the baptism itself, but because it joins us to the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Whoa, you say, now you're really going too far with your whole Lutheran thing. Baptism joins us to the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ? Who would say that? Romans chapter six, for we died and were buried with Christ by baptism. And just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glorious power of the Father, now we also may live new lives. Died and buried with Christ by baptism. Baptism connects us to Jesus Christ, not by itself, 
But when it's connected to the promise of God, that there is a God who loves this world so much that he sent his only son to die for you, when that promise comes to you, it can come through water, a baptism, it can come through the bread and the wine of the Lord's Supper, which you're about to receive. And some of you are like, well, if it's that good, just end the sermon and let's go. We're getting there, hold on. Baptism doesn't by itself save us, but baptism connected to the power of God's word and his promise does. Communion by itself doesn't save us, but communion connected to the power and the promise of God's love and his word and his grace poured out for you, it does. Your life is saved. So says scripture. So says God's word. Let me give you an illustration to try to help you put some practical real life examples on this. The power of baptism, the power of, of God's grace poured out for us. Back in 1973, there was a um, high school football coach. His name was Tandy Geralds. True story. It's uh, depicted in a movie called Woodlawn, which you, if you haven't seen it yet, you should. Came out a couple of years ago. Family friendly. Highly recommend it. Uh, and Coach Tandy Geralds was sort of a man's man, macho guy, uh, fair, honest, decent the kind of coach you want your kids to play for in high school, if you have kids who are in sports. He was, um, he was not religious, but he wasn't against it either. And the reason he wasn't religious is pretty much because he was distracted. He had other goals in life, bigger goals, like winning high school football games, which is not the worst goal in life. I mean, there are worse things to have for goals, much more selfish things. But it's not the best goal in life either because it isn't soul-satisfying. doesn't have the win or lose state championships. It won't satisfy your soul. It won't be enough. It won't satisfy your soul if your kids win it either. It won't be enough. If your grandkids win, it will satisfy your soul. But that's a whole other sermon for another day. <laughs> no, it won't. It won't. It's, it's a good thing. It's a nice thing. Nothing wrong with having it as a goal. But you're just missing it. You're just not getting the best part of life. You're missing the point. There's more to life than this. As good as these kinds of things can be, there's more to life. Well, he was about to discover that, and you might expect that since I'm preaching about it in a sermon in a Christian church. But it's the way it happened that might surprise you. In order to understand his conversion, you have to go back a few months before the school year started in 1973 in Birmingham, Alabama. In Birmingham in 1973, uh, the city was divided by race. I mean, not just divided because different races lived in different neighborhoods. There was rising angst and tension because there were movements afoot that would integrate the schools, forced segregation, uh, busing in, in Birmingham that would bring African-American students into previously all-white high schools like Woodlawn High School in Birmingham. And that meant Coach Tandy, for the first time ever, who had only coached white kids before, was suddenly going to have African-American kids on his team. Five of them this first year, 1973. True story. I know a little bit about how that feels. Eight or nine years later, I was a high school student in Chicago, Illinois, at a Chicago public school in the city, Taft High School. That's where I graduated in 1982. And my school had just been integrated, forced integration. 
uh, uh, people of different races for the first time ever were showing up in the high school in my neighborhood on the north side of Chicago. Kids from the west side and the south side and all over the city were being bussed into Taft to hang out with the kids who lived in that neighborhood where I lived in the city limits of Chicago and where my wife and I both went to high school. I would love to tell you that as soon as that happened, boy, we were, it was just a, this great, glorious, wonderful experience, and we all hit our harmony notes, and we lived happily ever after. We got there, but it was painful. I played on the basketball team, which was mixed race for the first time when I got there. That was, fa- that was a, a fascinating and, and educational experience, for sure. I lived this. So... All of a sudden, I'm on a team, and there are people from all over the city on my team, instead of just my neighborhood that I grew up playing with, and we're trying to get to know each other. And I would say for the first several weeks of practice, my my sophomore year of high school, my first year, there were fights in the locker room every week before and after practice. And they were always, every single time, racially motivated. Every single time, it was a black kid and a white kid. And they were going after each other because of the tension of having this change brought upon us. But it got better. And I don't want to overstate this. The truth is good enough. But there was a spiritual thing going on. There were some of us who were Christians who were white and some of us who were Christians who were African-American. And we discovered our unity in Christ was bigger than all the things that the world around us said should divide us. And we started doing some simple things that we didn't think were all that profound. We started eating lunch together in the cafeteria. People of different races. The team would sit together and eat together. And we, and we started hanging out at each other's houses because these were our best friends. <laughs> you should have seen my neighbors when I brought my African-American friends from the basketball team over into a... For some of them, it was the first time they'd ever seen anybody who wasn't white in this neighborhood. The story goes way deeper, and I don't have time to get into it, but it got better. It started to change the team, and then it started to change the school. Well, that's small potatoes compared to what happened in Birmingham, Alabama nine years earlier. And it wasn't the coach who led his kids to it. It was the kids on his team who led the coach to it. That's the surprise. Back up a few months before that and go to the Cotton Bowl in Dallas, Texas, where Billy Graham is preaching at a Billy Graham crusade, telling people about the things I'm telling you about. Jesus Christ, his love, his grace, poured out for you the light of God's love that shines for you. And at the end of his sermon, Billy Graham took a candle and he had all the lights in the Cotton Bowl. Imagine 70,000 plus people in the stadium on a dark night in Dallas, Texas, right before the school year starts. And Billy Graham has him shut off all the stadium lights. And so if you're in the stadium, you're one of the 70,000 plus who are there, and you've just heard the gospel, now all you see is one candle in the whole stadium. And it kind of stands out. You ever notice that? You can see it from everywhere. And then somebody comes up and lights their candle from his, and somebody else lights another one, and it starts to spread. Picture this. Imagine what it would have felt like to be there in that moment. If you've been here to hope on Christmas Eve, you get a sense. The light starts to spread. The light of the world starts to go out. God's grace is for us, but it's also for the world around us. Let your light shine, Jesus says. Let your light shine. 
And so it starts to spread God's grace. The sign of God's grace starts to spread throughout the stadium. And suddenly, in a matter of minutes, the whole night changes. It goes from utter darkness and one little light shining in that darkness to a stadium that's fully illuminated and warm. Can you imagine what it would have like, been like to be there in that moment? To sense that, to see that, to breathe that in? One of the young men who was there was from Birmingham, Alabama. And he got so inspired by what God did there that he went back to his hometown in Birmingham in his home neighborhood and looked around and said, my local high school, Woodlawn, is where I want to bring this light. And so he went up to the football coach and he said, hey coach, I'm not a teacher, I'm not a coach, I'm not a counselor, I don't even have any kids in this school, but I want to talk to your football team. The coach said, I'll give you five minutes. Five minutes. And the only reason he gave him five minutes was because his team was in turmoil. The white kids and the black kids weren't getting along. There were fights in the locker rooms. There were arrests being made. There was chaos in the school. I'll give you five minutes. It can't hurt. I'll give you five minutes. Well, this guy turns into a preacher. He takes an hour. I mean, what do you expect? <laughs> and what he tells the team, these high school kids, is the gospel of Jesus Christ. He shares the good news of God's grace being poured out for them in things like water and bread and wine and through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Not those things, water, bread, and wine, apart from the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, but the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And it stirs up the souls of this team. And at the end, he invites them to come and pray and they start to come black and white together and they realize we are one in Jesus Christ. The thing that I realized as a part of a high school basketball team that was forced to be mixed race on the north side of Chicago back in 1979, my sophomore year. Six years later, they realized in a way that God was going to use to absolutely explode in a positive way because the team started to change and then it started to change the school. And then the coach got a hold of it, the non-religious coach. He started to realize what was going on. And he looked around, he says, I want what they've got. And so he showed up at the church of the five players on his team that were African-American, and he asked to speak. Through baptism, you've been joined to the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Next verse, and if you've been united with him in a death like his, you'll most certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Don't underestimate the power of what God can do through simple life-giving elements like water and bread and wine. What God wants to do for you and through you right here. Oh, this story went on. Not only did it change that coach's life, it started to change that whole high school's life. And then the rival high school on the other side of town in Birmingham caught wind of the same revival. And they got inspired and the two schools started praying together and worshiping together. And when they had their big rival game at the end of the season to see who'd move on in the playoffs, 42,000 people showed up for that game. And 20,000 couldn't get in. It's the biggest high school football game in the history of Alabama still to this day. Only revival can do that. Only a move of God 
can heal a divided culture. I've gone on record as saying the last few weeks, and I'll keep saying it, we're at that point as a nation. We are so deeply divided in so many ways, we can bury our heads in the sand and, and just preach soft, nice sermons, or we can be honest about the issues that are before us. We are so deeply divided right now that we're getting to the point where if you know your history, you start to realize it's not sustainable, and we're either going to break or we're going to experience revival. So I want to ask you today, Lutheran Church of Hope, is your heart and your mind open to revival? Because if you know your American history, you know the abolition of slavery wouldn't have happened if there hadn't have been a revival that led to it. Where God got a hold of some church people, some Christians, and it started to spread across the whole country where they realized, biblically, we can't own people anymore. We never could. Biblically, it's not justifiable to live this way. We can't go on like this. We can't continue like this. And it was a revival that led to the freedom of the slaves, the abolition of slavery. It was a revival, if you know your history, that led to giving women the right to vote in this country. It was a revival that led to the civil rights movement of the 1960s, led by a Baptist preacher. It's always revival that heals us, that crosses the divides, that brings us back together. In cities like Birmingham in 1973, on the north side of Chicago in, in the early 80s, in, in the history of this country, and right now, and some of us sense in a very deep way the roar of a new wave of God's Spirit that's forming. We, we can practically taste it. We can feel it. We sense that it's coming because we believe God cares that he deeply cares about who we are and the way we're going to live and hope you're a part of this. It isn't just God's light for you. I got my grace. I got my heaven. I got my eternity. I'm good. It's God's grace through you. It's let your light shine. It's come to the waters of baptism as a, as a thing that joins you because of the promise of God's word to the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And today, it's come to the table. It's get in line. I mean, it's, it's run to the line to come and get the bread and the wine and to receive it, knowing that Jesus gave you his word on this. He says, this is my body. It's not just do this in remembrance of me. It is that. He said that too. But it's also more than just a remembrance, more than just a symbol. He says, it's my body. And this, this wine is the new cup and the new covenant between God and his people. An agreement confirmed with my blood. Folks, this is the smallest meal you're going to eat all week. I'm pretty sure. The bread is the worst tasting bread you'll ever eat. It's flat, it's a wafer. I mean, it's just, it's really cheap. So we're being very good stewards of your offering money. It's safe, it's, it's, it's sanitized, so don't worry about that. But it's, it's not good, it's, it doesn't taste good at all. The wine isn't even worthy to be called two buck chuck. It's cheaper. It, it's, it's, just, it's, it's ridiculously cheap. It's, it's. Well, we don't want to give you stale wine. We just give you the fresh stuff from this year. <laughs> Vintage 2017, like two weeks ago. Aged for a day and a half. Here you go. It's not that this meal physically by itself is going to blow. It'll underwhelm you, which is part of the temptation to think nothing big's happening here. Oh, it's huge. It's life-changing. It absolutely, if you receive it with faith, radically changes the way you leave this church compared to the way you came into this church today. 
You're completely different. You're set free. Your sins are forgiven. Not the bread and the wine. Not the Lord's Supper by itself. That's an external sign of a divine promise. This is my body, Jesus says. This is my blood given and shed for you for the forgiveness of all your sins. You were lost and now you're found. You were dead and now you're alive again. We're all more complex than we want to think. Or other people are. Oh, we're so good. Do you read social media? Do you listen to the debates? We're so good at dismissing people because we disagree with one aspect of their nature or their character or their politics or their worldview. Well, you're out of my life then. I don't want anything to do with you. Does that sound like Jesus to you? It doesn't to me. It's not biblical. I know it's tempting to do it because almost everybody's doing it on every side. It goes both ways. At some point, we either break or we experience revival. God has a better way, a deeper truth, a more abundant life for us. And it starts by admitting that we're saints and sinners. And so are the people around us. There's a lot of Archie Bunkers around us. People that if we want to, we can find the faults, we can find the flaws, they're obvious. They're easy to see. And we could dismiss that person then. I want nothing to do with that person. Because, you know, he said something once that I didn't like. She did something once that was wrong. So she's out of my life. Or we could go God's way and offer the world around us the same grace he offers us. Because the ground is level at the foot of the cross of Jesus. It's level. It reminds us that we're all sinners in need of a savior. Jesus told the famous story in Luke's gospel about the Pharisee and the tax collector, the temptation for religious people to start to think that they don't need the cross or grace anymore, that we graduate from it, that somehow the goal of Christianity is to achieve spiritual morality that is perfect and we no longer need to be forgiven. We don't have to get in line for the bread and wine anymore. But we do. In fact, that's an even darker place. And Jesus knew it, which is why he spared his harshest words for Self-righteous religious people, not sexual sinners, not people lost in immorality. For those people, the first thing Jesus did is he shooed away their accusers. The next thing he did is he put his arm around them and he said, look, privately between you and me, I'm telling you, this isn't the life for you. Go and sin no more. Let me show you a better way. But I'm not going to post it on Facebook and humiliate you. I I'm not going to tear your character down in front of everybody else. I'm only going to give you love and support, which is what he did and what he modeled and the example he sets for us. There's a better way, a deeper truth and a more abundant life. And God's calling us to it, and there's a lot at stake. Lutheran Church of Hope, you're the biggest church in central Iowa. What are you going to do with this grace? Are you going to live the way the rest of the world lives on this, or are you going to be the ones who are going to counter it are you going to be the ones who are going to point people to the light? Show them something more. We were lost and now we're found. 
We were dead and now we're alive again. But this isn't just good news for us. It's for us to share. Let your light shine, Jesus said. Not to a, not to a room full of perfectly moral people, but a hillside full of fallen sinners. Let your light shine. You're complicated people. I'm not going to wait for you to become perfect before I can do miraculous things through you. I'm going to do it right now. My power made perfect in your weaknesses. I just need you to be willing and faithful and to believe it. That I've got something for you and through you to the world around you that can change the world. See, the communion isn't just for the forgiveness of our sins when we take it with faith. It's a glimpse, it's a vision, a foretaste of how things are supposed to be. It's communion. We're coming together as one from all sorts of different backgrounds and all sorts of different places. One in Jesus Christ. We were lost and now we're found. Some of you know I'm the volunteer announcer at Waukee High School football games. Here's what's interesting, as those games get bigger and bigger every year because the Waukee School District keeps growing, the crowd gets bigger and bigger and more and more people lose things. And so the press box where I announce the games, I announce important information like who made the tackle. Very important. But there's a lot of other stuff going on right behind me and that's why Sally's in the booth with me now, my wife. As a volunteer, she, she's in charge of lost and found and logistics. Because all throughout every game, there are a steady stream of cell phones and wallets that come into the press box that are lost that need to be found. Well, one of the phones just a couple of nights ago, Friday night, came in and Sally looks at it and she's trying to figure out, you know, is there any way to figure out whose it is and we can get it to this person. And, and then all of a sudden there's a message that pops up on the, on the front of it. It's an iPhone and it says, I lost my phone, help. Obviously, whoever lost it got a friend's phone and sent that message. And then I don't know if my wife found a way to call that number or that number then called that phone she was holding in her hand, but they talked and <laughs> the kid, the high school kid on the other side said, I lost my phone, but I can't hear you. I'm in a stadium right now. Where do you think your phone went? You think they already like, crossed the border with it or something and they're selling it for drugs or what, what's going on? <laughs> and my, my wife didn't say that because she's too sweet. She said, well, I've got it. I, I, I've got it. And, she's, and he said, you've got my phone? <laughs> no, I don't. I just am talking some magically through your number. Within two minutes, there's a pound. I mean, an enthusiastic pounding on the door. If we hadn't opened it, it would have broken down. And a couple of high school boys come running in and Sally says, is this yours? And the one kid, he doesn't even go for his phone. He runs and leaps, projectile hugs my wife and get, doesn't know her, doesn't have no idea who she is. As far as we know, I mean, you never know around here, people show up at hope. But, gives her this big bear hug and says, oh, you saved my life. <laughs> kind of, maybe. The bread and the wine you're about to receive because it's connected to the promise of Jesus Christ saves your life. No joke. Saves your life. You are lost and this will find you because the promise of Jesus Christ comes to you through the bread and wine, his choice. I'll take these 
the most basic of all elements. And I'll be, as Luther said, in it, with it, and underneath it. So when you receive it with faith, it's done to you. Forgiveness of sins, done to you. My light, my grace for your sin, for your complexities, for the times when you're not completely moral, from the times when, you're, when your judgment is off, for the times when you develop a judgmental spirit toward others. My grace for you, my life for your death. You were lost and now you're found. There should be joy in us to receive this. Break down the door enthusiasm. A God who loves us this much to give us precisely what we need. Don't underestimate what's going on here. We're not playing church. We're not going through the motions. Lives are being saved for eternity, including yours and mine, if we have enough faith to receive it for what it is and just let it be what it is. I want you to take out your phones since we're talking a lot about phones in this sermon. And I want you to hit your little flashlight. And I want to give you a vision for what Wells Fargo Arena is going to look like on Christmas Eve. One light of God's love spreading to more, spreading to more, spreading to more. At every campus, let your light shine, Jesus says. Changes the room, doesn't it? Imagine just for a moment what this is going to look like on Christmas Eve at Wells Fargo Arena with a stadium full of people who are giving God praise for His grace being poured out for us. Well, that's the kind of thing that will start a revival. We don't have to wait till then. You can let your light shine right now. And I encourage you to do it. Jesus didn't say let your light shine to perfect people. He said it to people just like us. People who are complicated. People who get it right, try to get it right. Sometimes we get it wrong. If we're going to be honest. God's grace for you. God's grace for me. God's grace for us. And then he says, let your light shine. Share it with the world around you. Go tell them. Now that I've put you, Lutheran Church of Hope, there on a hilltop on a light stand, be what I've made you to be. Let your light shine. Shine for the world around you. Shine. Amen? You can hit your lights, but let the light of God's love forever shine for you and through you. Reflect it to the world around you.